Welcome to the Sanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, I'm excited to share my conversation with Dr. Guillermo Lichand. Guillermo is an assistant professor at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University and a co-director at the Stanford Lehman Center. His research interests explore the source of education inequalities in the global South and in interventions with the potential to overturn them. In this episode, we chat about his recent paper titled The Lasting Impact of Remote Learning in the Absence of Remedial Policies, Evidence from Brazil. Guilherme shows his insights on how remote learning could have negative long-term impacts on the learning outcomes, especially in places without high-quality access to the facilities required by remote learning. He also talks about whether the same patterns could generalize to remote work. That is, does work from home have negative impacts on our productivity? Without further ado, here's our conversation. So thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Um, and today we are going to talk about a topic that's quite relevant to our lives as we are gradually moving away from the pandemic era. The title of this paper that we are going to talk about is called The Lasting Impacts of Remote Learning in the Absence of Remedial Policies, Evidence from Brazil. As someone who started grad school in remote learning situations, I guess before we dive into the paper, I have to ask you this. What inspired this line of research for you? So thank you for having me, uh, first of all, Angie. I'm a listener, <laughs> avid listener of, of the podcast. I'm originally from Brazil, and that allowed me to work closely with some education secretariats during the pandemic. So I, I could see the struggle. You know, they were doing their best trying to transition to remote learning and to support teachers and students and families in a very, very challenging situation. The situation was challenging everywhere, but you can imagine how much so in a country where the conditions to study remotely are very far from ideal. Mm -hmm. Internet access is still subpar. Uh, the availability of devices to study at home. And over 50% of adults lost their jobs or you know, suffered in their livelihoods as a result of the pandemic. So we did a lot of work during this 2020 and the early days when the vaccine was just arriving in some parts of Brazil to understand whether it was safe to reopen schools and the extent of learning losses back then. But that also gave us the preferential access over data that we could use to keep tracking what was going on as these policies were back in place. And so the motivation for this particular study was twofold. The first is very policy oriented. Mm -hmm. Is it the case, is it enough to just reopen schools or do you have to do more? And that's a, it seems like a absurd question depending on where you are listening to this mm -hmm. because many countries did a lot and are still doing a lot to try to mitigate learning losses, or maybe they don't have to do as much because schools were closed for very little. Mm -hmm. In Brazil, the average school, average public school was closed for two years. So you can imagine the extent yeah. of learning mm -hmm. losses and how it might seem very odd to think that just reopening schools is enough <laughs> to mitigate right. losses. But in fact, that's what most of them did. 
in the in Brazil so far, we still don't have a national program to deal with learning losses. And most schools like to think that the problem is gone. So mm -hmm. it was first a, a very practical policy motivation to document. Is it really the case? Are, are these losses dissipating as time goes by? And if so, is it just a mechanical thing? Do you just reopen the schools for in-person activities and these losses, they disappear? Or do you actually have to do a lot of tutoring, communication with parents and so on? We'll discuss the details soon. But the other motivation was conceptual. Mm -hmm. When you think about the skill acquisition model, the literature will uh, you know, typically tell you that there are many factors that go into the mix of producing skills over time. And many of those factors, they lead early advantages to fade out over time. Typically, we can think of a probabilistic model of advancing to the next rung as you're going up a ladder of skill acquisition. And there is always a probability of advancing to the next rung once you mastered the previous rank, the previous mm -hmm. set of skills. Because this is probabilistic, if you skip ahead, you get an mm -hmm. early start. And of course, the same is if you fall behind, it's the same right. way. Eventually, everybody will catch up because uh, some it might take longer for some uh, than others, but it's always mm -hmm. a probability. So if you skip ahead, at some point, there's just a chance that you will end up falling behind as well, and then the others catch up. And mm -hmm. it's the same if you fell behind. There's Eventually, you're going to reach the others ahead of you. And that's what you tend to see in the data. Drew Bailey and co-authors have many papers looking at both at what we call cognitive skills and social-emotional skills. They mm -hmm. tend to have early advantages brought about by interventions of many sorts. They tend to eventually disappear. So they, mm -hmm. they But of course, all this is ignoring external factors that they call latent factors mm -hmm. underlying learning. So it could be student motivation, parents' expectations, teachers' aspirations. All these things might actually lead early advantages to persist. And actually, it was not clear if given the magnitude of the shock of the pandemic, which doesn't look mm -hmm. anything like any of these in-class interventions that the literature has evaluated, whether we would also see fade out over time. And from a conceptual perspective, we were also very motivated to try to see if we could show just to document what happened, but also potentially to uncover something very different here. And I think that's what we did. Right. That is fascinating. And thank you so much for giving us these both the technical as well as the conceptual background of this paper. So one set of, uh, I guess, statistics I read from this paper that I found personally to be very shocking is, I quote, students learn only 39% in Portuguese and 17% in math of what they would have learned under in-person classes. Mm -hmm. And when I saw these pairs of stats, and I was like, I was just so shocked because I thought, I understand that being locked down, being remote learning would have an impact, but not even half as what it could have been that in-person. This is really shocking. So I guess maybe if you can say more about the kind of the background statistic you're working with, the lack of uh, learning outcomes that you are seeing mm -hmm. uh, from the remote learning. So for example, how is it measured? And also, I'm also curious, why is there a uh, subject differences? Right. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges in this research program was measuring this uh, outcomes in a way that was comparable, like before, during, and after school closures in the pandemic, not only in terms of what was being measured, but also who uh, was taking those tests. As you can imagine, these are standardized test scores, which is pretty mm -hmm. good. Brazil has national uh, tests that uh, are all IRT, so we can compare students over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you have a, a good sense of 
like proficiency based on these test results. And uh, some states like Sao Paulo, they, they had this test every quarter. So pretty good high frequency data on whether students were learning at the right pace as in a typical year. So we have data starting from 2018. So we know for every grade what the kind of expected learning is uh, given in-person classes. And we can fix for cohort variations because in Brazil over time, more more recent cohorts are better and better because they, the country is becoming less poor over time. So these kids have a better start and so on. So there's all that we have to take into account. But then Sao Paulo was also useful for this particular investigation because they uh, transitioned into remote learning by the end of the first quarter of uh, 2020, even though the first quarter was classes were all in person, but the assessment was already remote. So they created a digital version of these assessments and we used this change in assessment, but the mode of instruction was kept the same during the first quarter of that year. Mm-hmm. to really evaluate what the difference between in-person versus remote instruction in terms of learning, keeping mm-hmm. the assessment fixed. Because in 2020, all assessments were remote anyway. So that's how we document these huge uh, differences in terms of expected learning of a typical year versus that particular year, basically by mm-hmm. comparing the first quarter to all the other quarters. Now, basically, I in the see. first quarter, students, they learn pretty much the same. And even with the change in assessment, like very similar uh, test scores. But but the most important thing is this, this difference between what they learn in this first quarter relative to previous years. Mm-hmm. And then in the remaining quarters of the year when schools were closed, also comparing mm-hmm. to the last three quarters of a typical year. And the assessment, again, is fixed. So that allows mm-hmm. you to really isolate the effects of school closures. And so this is not just the effects of the pandemic. Like the pandemic, right. we show that learning losses were pretty similar even in municipalities of the state that had very bad figures in terms of cases, deaths, and so on, and oh. municipalities that were very scarcely affected. So that's shocking because that those losses you commented on are really the effects of schools being closed and not like the overall shock of the pandemic. So it's a very special setting to study these effects. Now, we can also restrict attention to only the students who took all assessments throughout that period, So we can do really a lot. We have report card grades are not that good in terms of standardized grading, but we have this this report card grades for almost the universe of students in the state. And we're talking about 3.6 million students. So it's really a lot. 3.6 million students. Yeah, that's a huge uh, school network. And we we show basically that these losses are very, very similar regardless of how you look at them. So Mm -hmm. it's a great setting to get precise figures on what the pandemic meant for these students trying to do their best without in-person mm-hmm. classes. And the, the, those figures you mentioned are exactly what we found. And for Portuguese, for language, it's already pretty bad. So they learn only is roughly 40% of the, what they would learn typically. But from right. math, that's right. They only learn less than 20%. Uh, it's hard to tell. I think we learn some things from this. One is, in-person uh, classes are, are important. Mm-hmm. Education quality in Brazil is often criticized and uh, the role of teachers is often criticized by in the public debate. There's many criticism that some of them are fair like to, to, the, to things that could be much better in, in our educational system. But the truth is, it's still critical. <laughs> it's crucial that students go to schools. And, and I think the pandemic showed that very clearly. Now, why can students learn 
more easily say language than math remotely? I, I'm not sure I have a very good answer, but I think we've been seeing this not only in Brazil, but also in meta-analysis that looked separately at these subjects across the globe. Interesting. Oh, yeah, that is fascinating uh, backstories of this. And maybe now it's time for us to dive into the paper itself. So my next question was, how did you study this? But I think you already touched upon um, this giant data sets you have. Um, but maybe we can start with, what did you find? What is the one key or a few very surprising things that you have seen in your work? So despite all I have told you already, there was still one big challenge to be overcome, uh, mm -hmm. which was you know, how can we really tell apart the papers about the long-lasting impacts of remote learning? If I look at 2021, when all schools are already back, right? Everyone is already with in-person classes. How can I nail if these impacts are, they persist or not? Because if everybody was exposed to remote learning and now everybody was exposed to in-person classes back again, does it suffice to just look at before and after and then I will learn whether this affects this? The answer is clearly no, because of other policies that have been adopted in the meantime. Of course, they're, none of them are universal, but some 80% of schools were offering extra classes in the aftermath of the pandemic to try to make up for uh, learning losses and some... 30% of them had tutoring uh, outside school hours. Some 15% of them had some managerial support, others some less than that percent, but still some had communication with uh, students and their families. So how do I really isolate the effect of remote learning one year after? That's pretty challenging and typically impossible because there was, the, there was no experiment where some schools were randomized to come back early and some not. But in mm -hmm. practice, there's something that looks like an experiment. It's what economists call a natural experiment. So just mm -hmm. some policies, they come about uh, sometimes responding to many external factors, but they still give us kind of the statistical conditions to say something about causal effects that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. So in Sao Paulo, already in the last quarter of 2020, circa 20% of schools, of municipalities, sorry, authorized schools to reopen for in-person activities. So already mm -hmm. before the vaccine, because the cases there were low enough, they were confident that, and, and they, they saw the importance of in-person classes. And so they authorized mm -hmm. schools to resume classes. But it was very special because not all classes could resume. Whenever they authorized, it was only for high school students. Even though some people would say they had they would have an easier time studying remotely, they, they felt like it was important for them to get back to in-person as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Also, because for younger kids, I think it was less obvious at this point what the transmission looked like. So they mm -hmm. were they, 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 they were less comfortable in the policy-making realm in, in allowing classes to resume for the younger kids. So that's what they did. We looked, and before this authorization decrease came about, it's not like these two municipalities. The, the ones that authorized schools to reopen and the other ones were very mm -hmm. different in terms of mm -hmm. their learning trajectories. They were different. The ones that authorized schools to reopen were typically larger and they were at different stages of the pandemic. So they were at different levels, but the trends were very similar. So we use something that's called a differences in differences estimator, basically comparing mm -hmm. municipalities that allowed schools to reopen to those that did not before and after the reopening decision. And mm -hmm. then we, of course, use this extra trick that I mentioned, which is a triple difference. You know, within the municipalities that reopen, we compare 
high school students to middle school students. And then mm-hmm. you can really get, you can still think that those municipalities that reopen schools are different. You know, maybe they're more committed to education. Who knows? Right. Not differentially so when it comes to like older students and younger students. It was just the character of the policy. Mm. Decision. And so we compare, there's these three layers that we're comparing. And so what we can show is those high school students who had the opportunity to already go back to in-person classes by the end of 2020, they skipped ahead. So the difference between test scores, Mm -hmm. standardized test scores of those relative to the middle school students in those municipalities increases relative to that same difference, the same distance in the municipalities where in-person classes did not go back in 2020 for any student. So that's the effect of coming back to classes early. Mm-hmm. So we knew that already for 2020 that it was important to, to resume in-person classes. But then we keep track of the same comparisons in 2021. So we want to see mm-hmm. by the very end of 2021, did they keep that original advantage? So that comes back to my original metaphor about the letter ranks, right? Mm-hmm. So they skipped ahead a little bit. Is it the case mm-hmm. by one year later, when everyone is back to in-person classes, they are still ahead or mm-hmm. has the decreased or maybe disappeared? Mm-hmm. And then we find that using that natural experiment to isolate the effects of school closures from everything else, this difference did not decrease at all. If anything, mm-hmm. the distance is even a little larger. So, you know, that shows that reopening schools is at the same time critical because if schools mm-hmm. remain closed, you know, this would get worse and worse, but mm-hmm. not enough to dissipate those uh, learning losses coming from staying longer in remote learning during the pandemic. Does it make sense? Yes. Just to make sure I got it clear. So what you found is, so let's say we have two high schools and in one high school, it came back earlier. So they started the in-person instructions earlier than the other high school. And what you found at that point is that these kids are better than the schools that didn't bring back the kids. But the thing is, even after a year when everybody has been in this in-person setting, the kids who were better, who was brought in uh, earlier, still does better than the other group of kids. That's right. And what's even more shocking is that it's not only that they're still doing better, this gap that opened up, it's still there. And and statistically, it's even a bit larger. Hmm. So the gap increases over time, or at the very least, it doesn't decrease. So there's Hmm. no fade out going on in the absence of policies at least. Yeah, that is definitely very shocking to me. And I guess maybe this is the part where remedial policy, remedial ed- education policy comes into place because the title of your paper includes this phrase, the absence of remedial policies. So can you say more about what this is? And can you give some examples of how it has been implemented in other contexts? Definitely. Many governments throughout the world have tried to do a lot to or to take important steps towards mitigating those learning losses. One very common example is tutoring. So mm-hmm. many countries tried to pair up students with either volunteers or paid tutors that would come into the school or do it remotely to help them out with whatever gaps they had accumulated during, during that period, such, such that they could make faster progress and you know, try to reach the desired level or the expected learning that they Imagine after two years, if you learn that little, as we documented, you have a lot of gaps to make up for. And so these tutors, mm-hmm. they support you in doing work outside of the classroom. 
But of course, it's hard to do it well. Susanna Loeb here at the Stanford GSE has done a lot of work trying to document what a good tutoring program looks like three to five times a week, at least 30 minutes a day, during school hours, in close collaboration with the teachers. It's pretty hard to do that. And in Brazil, that's the tutoring programs that were offered don't look anything like those. They were a fair attempt, but uh, they are definitely not following best practices. And so we compare schools where these programs were implemented to others. There are some limitations to that, those comparisons because tutoring was not randomized. Municipalities right. are not exactly identical, but we get some a, a sense that this might have helped, but not tremendously a lot. Quality of implementation matters, but that's one example of, of a program that uh, you know, came up in this context a lot. Also, full-time schools. like In Brazil, it's still the case that students, most of the students in the country spend four, at most five hours a day in school rather than seven yeah. or eight. Interesting. And so this transition has been in, taking place in the country over the last few years. Some schools mm-hmm. already offered uh, full-time high schools before the pandemic. And so they mm-hmm. had more hours uh, in the aftermath. And then you see some faster catch-up there. Although, again, these schools are not randomly assigned. So a lot of these comparisons that we do in terms of the policies are imperfect. But mm-hmm. we can, at least there's one policy that we have access to that allows to nail the contribution of these remedial policies using a real experiment. And this mm-hmm. is the case of communication with students and their families. Hmm. So during the pandemic, I've done a lot of work in social-emotional communication, especially when it comes to growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And I've done many studies in Brazil using very simple communication media like text messages, you know, SMS, yeah. try to promote this mindset, these beliefs that if your brain is like a muscle, if you're putting more effort, you can always make progress relative to yourself. Of course, mm-hmm. there are many constraints, right? So many of these kids are poor. They come from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds and the school might not, not offer the best conditions for learning. But if they believe that it's not a, a matter of lack of talent, they can always mm-hmm. make progress if they you know, putting more effort in favorable com- conditions to learn more. And uh, these beliefs, they, there's lots of evidence in the U.S., in Norway, even in Chile, that first, that they're correlated with things we care a lot about. Students mm-hmm. who have a fixed mindset, even controlling for income, you know, condition on the same household income, they tend to do. If you believe intelligence is fixed, there's nothing you can do to change that. You tend to do much worse in math and, and language. You tend to challenge yourself much less. You tend mm-hmm. to stay less as well. And there are some experiments as well showing that if you successfully change students' mindsets, they also improve in, in mm-hmm. math, science. The, the great repetition goes down. Student dropouts go down. So we wanted to try the same during the pandemic. And in some states, we did just that. But in Sao Paulo, which is the setting up this big study we're talking about. We couldn't do it during the pandemic, but mm-hmm. as we opened, they said, let's push it now. Let's try to run a big experiment where we can document if promoting a growth mindset can boost learning recovery in the aftermath of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We had over 100,000 students enrolled in this experiment. I mean, it's a big network from all grades, six mm-hmm. to 12th grade. And we randomize, so it's an experiment. We can tell exactly what the contribution of this policy mm-hmm. is. And basically, the as simple as they get, I mean, and, and these are very simple messages. It's mm-hmm. two messages a week. SMS is very limited. 
like 160 characters, mm -hmm. no emojis, no, no images. Uh -huh. uh, still, it's the idea of reinforcing a message twice a week, every week for the course of 12 weeks. Always telling students uh, that, that, that they can make progress if they put in more effort. We see absenteeism decrease by 50% in the treatment group relative to control. And we see learning rates double, basically. So they learn twice as fast relative to the control group, while the message is less. So, of course, it's, uh, it's fantastic news for growth mindset and for the experiment. But, you know, in the context of this study, it, it allows us to really say, well, look, it's the effect of policies. Because on average, there was some catch-up. Mm -hmm. But again, with the natural experiment comparing the high school students that you summarized, we didn't see catch-up, but then we see a lot of catch-up when mm. policies are there. So we put everything together. It tells you, again, half full glass. We saw some recovery, even in a the low or middle-income country like Brazil. Uh, and so it's not a lost generation. That's the half full mm -hmm. glass. But the half empty one is, you know, it's not going to happen by itself. Policy yeah. needed, and it's not like everyone is prioritizing this. This policy is everywhere. Yeah, this is fascinating because I, when I first encountered this phrase "remedial education policy," I thought it's gonna be some very sophisticated instruments like intensive tutoring program, national, I don't know, national program, like doing very intensive things. And but in contrast, the empirical evidence that you just share with us is actually something that's pretty minimum and pretty short that can be easily implemented, that can actually has a big effect on student learning. I think that's just fascinating. So I do want to ask more about this remote learning thing, because I'm wondering if you know or have any speculations about what aspect of remote learning is contributing to this learning loss. Mm -hmm. So for example, I think a lot about how like these days when at least on, in college level, a lot of professors are experimenting with something called flipped classroom. So instead of like just learning in lectures in person, you watch a video, you watch a lectures, and then you come in for discussions. Right. So it really sounds like to me that there's some elements of maybe having access to material remotely will not necessarily means that uh, some terrible things will happen to the learning outcomes. So I'm just curious about if you can say more about whether uh, what aspects of remote learning is to blame for the loss of learning. Right. The setting that you just described where remote resources complement what happens in the classroom seems to be pretty ideal. There you still have in-person instruction or engagement with the teacher and, and the peers and whatever happens remotely can boost that, you know, what's happening in the classroom. That's very different from what we saw during the pandemic. Basically, it was mm -hmm. a very prolonged period where students basically had to manage on their own. And that's very challenging, especially for the younger ones, right? Uh, right. Having to organize their own study routine uh, and, and to be disciplined to study by themselves. And especially in a setting where, as I was saying, you know, like imagine in Sao Paulo, they were screening the content on TV because many, many students didn't have connectivity or computers to follow this. And they would have one device, one connected device at home that parents were often using to work as delivery mm. guys and so on to complement income during those challenging times. But I want to mention two things that I think are useful to put this into more perspective. One is there was a study 
uh, looking at the impacts of remote learning in the Netherlands. And this is very different, right? Not, um, connectivity is not, not an issue in the Netherlands compared to mm-hmm. And also schools were closed for much shorter. So all this study, I think, was during the three months of summer when they, they had to make this transition. But what is, to me, interesting that they found there is that also students learn close to nothing during remote learning, even in the Netherlands. I think that tells me, again, that in-person classes matter. Sure, you can complement that them with remote resources, but it's not just about the lack of infrastructure and the conditions to study at home. It's very hard to learn by yourself, very hard, even if there's someone guiding you remotely. And I think the evidence beyond Brazil convinced me that I don't see this model like this only remote or remote first model really taking off for at least for K-12. Now, even mm-hmm. for higher ed, the there is an interesting set of papers that tries to investigate the causal effects of remote learning. Some by mm-hmm. our colleagues here at Stanford GSC as well, like Eric Bettinger. He looks, for instance, at uh, one set of colleges that they, they had too much like oversubscription for certain classes and they couldn't offer seats for everyone in person. So they basically randomized some people into Mm -hmm. like the remote version of those classes. And later at the end, they could compare how they did in terms of assignments and grades and so on. And they can document a trade-off. So on the one hand, you know, offering a remote version of those classes brings in a more diverse uh, set of demographics to those classes. Mm -hmm. It's good, right? It expands access. If it's a community college, more people can join because not everyone can always come to campus and remotely maybe they can study at their own pace whenever they have time. So there's this good part. But the bad part is people studying remotely, only remotely, they do much worse in terms of what they learn from this class. Mm. I think that is the tension that uh, is there whenever we're talking about remote instruction. It allows universities or whatever, whoever is offering these classes to expand access, and that can be a good Mm -hmm. thing. But typically, it compromises on the quality of learning outcomes, and then one has to think carefully about that balance. But again, nothing of this. I I still don't know of evidence that is about like the combination of of remote and in-person that you described. And I think there's a lot of room to do more research on, on those questions. That is very fascinating and also alarming for, I started my grad school in complete remote setting, but I guess I'm curious if you think the similar patterns or whether the evidence you presented here could be used as an argument against work from home. Because I know, especially here in the Bay Area, a lot of the companies are really pushing for return to office. And most of them are facing a lot of frictions from the employees because they felt like return to office is just benefiting people in real estate so they can keep leasing their office. But I guess I'm wondering if you think the same patterns would generalize there or remote learning and remote work is just two fundamentally very different things. Yeah, great question. I haven't thought about this as much, but uh, let me offer you one uh, additional result from the paper that maybe gives us something to discuss in these different contexts. When we saw these results, the ones about the persistence of learning losses, we were asking ourselves, why is that the case? Again, if it's just this dynamic complementarity of skill acquisition that I mentioned at first, you shouldn't see 
these persistent ratios that are over 100%, you, you should see some fade out at least. Mm-hmm. Maybe not complete fade out, but you should see some. You, you should see some. Whereas if it's about these latent factors that I mentioned, motivation, expectations, aspirations, then that's more consistent with the idea that you could see much slower fade out or even no uh, fade out or complete persistence. And so we, we try to look at some other outcomes that we have there to get a sense of what's ultimately going on. And then we see two things that I think are insightful. The first is when schools reopen by the end of 2020, again, only for those 20% of municipalities that authorize them to re- resume for high school students, you see that test scores for those students immediately go up for language, for Portuguese, mm. but not for math. It's not like they immediately did much better in math. They did much better in Portuguese already. But interestingly, one year later, they're doing much better in both. So if you believe these tests are capturing the skills, this already goes against this mere dynamic complementarity story, which is that they end up much better in math because they already started better in math. The the tests don't capture Mm -hmm. this at least. So that already tells us that probably it's about these latent factors. And then we look at attendance, student attendance. And then what happens is right after schools reopen for in-person activities, then attendance spikes for both in both math and language in Portuguese classes for the students who were exposed earlier to in-person classes. So that's very consistent with the story where the students, they just got more motivated to keep going to school, Hmm. despite the learning gaps, which were very large, even for those students. And that can be a combination of many things. Their bond with the school was stronger. Their Mm -hmm. teachers maybe expected them to perform better because they had come back earlier. Maybe their parents were more aware of the importance of, of keeping engaged in school or had higher aspirations for how far they would uh, if, you know, ultimately reach uh, true education. So there are many of these external kind of motivational factors that play a mm. very important role. This effect, they, are, they persist. You see the, the higher attendance rates for these students who came back earlier. They keep uh, above the control group even until mm. the end of 2021. So a year later, they're still coming more to class, which is striking. So while the setting is completely different from <laughs> work from home and so on, I think that tells you that in-person has all these kind of social-emotional components uh, mm-hmm. that are hard to replicate remotely. And everyone can, can feel that, right? I'm sure you felt this during the pandemic in trying to connect to the to your peers in the cohort, to connect to the professors, to informally chat with them, to feel like you were really kind of part of uh, the university or of your cohort. I think it's the same with companies. Uh, it depends on each one's personal history. Maybe for people who were much longer in the company, that matters less. For sure, people brought in during those years and, and already when you start working from home, it's hard to create that attachment, that sense of belonging, that uh, identification with the corporate culture that ultimately limits, I think, what teams can build together. And uh, But again, everything has trade-offs, I'm sure. The same as when we discuss universities offering remote courses versus in-person. Remote work from home will probably attract different sets of employees who value more being able to have that flexibility. So companies have to assess these trade-offs carefully. I'm not sure what's the optimal balance, but for sure we're always uh, losing a lot when we don't have the opportunity to interact in person. 
with these structured quality interactions. Definitely. Just anecdotally, I definitely feel a stronger sense of belonging once we were able to go in, especially when the department starts to offer free food that we can <laughs> go around and eat. Um, so thank you so much for giving us this kind of analogy between return to office and return to school. And I guess maybe we know, I know we are towards the end of our uh, episode. I wonder if you can say a little bit about your own intellectual trajectories. Because I remember when I first talked to you, you mentioned you are economist by training. Mm -hmm. And then now you're in the education school and you're talking at a psychology podcast. So I guess I'm curious about if you can share a little bit about how you became interested or in the topic that you're currently studying. Yeah, it's been quite a ride. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's right. I'm an economist by training, which means... You know, I typically abuse psychology. <laughs> in the, <laughs> I'm fascinated by the constructs and the research that's done by my colleagues. And that was the case. Even back in the, my, my days at Harvard during my PhD, I started working with the psychologists to, to understand how being faced with scarcity, financial resources, so if you're facing poverty and you're worried about making ends meet by the end of the month, or scarcity of other resources like water, so if you are a small holder farmer in Northeast Brazil, which is very dry, and then you're worried if you're not going to have enough rain for a good uh, harvest. In th both cases, I was interested in whether that would affect one's executive function. So would that affect your attention, your working memory, your ability to exercise impulse control? And how do you measure those things? Economists have no training in, in how you would approach those measurement problems. And of course, psychologists have been thinking about those issues for a very long time. So I had fun you know, during the PhD trying to learn how to incorporate those measures into the kind of service that we tend to conduct and how to isolate these causal effects also on those type of psychological outcomes. And then I just kept digging this idea that poverty might create this kind of psychological tax on your ability to make decisions. Of course, this, this is not saying like blaming people who are in, in poverty for bad decisions. That's not at all what that is. It's just saying that the environment creates these constraints mm -hmm. that end up deteriorating your ability to you know, exercise your full agency. And uh, so it actually calls for policy, right? So in looking for policies that would alleviate constraints, I, among many, I, I started looking into education because education mm -hmm. is one of these settings where you can think in principle, everyone has the same agency to build their own trajectories and a, a better version of themselves and fulfill their, their potential as uh, productive adults and citizens of this world. But uh, there are many constraints that might make people stumble al along the way. And uh, psychological constraints might be very important among them, right? In, in education, aspirations, beliefs, they play such a critical role. And I can I remember for, for myself when I was I think what the seventh grader, um, I had one math teacher that once told me I would never be good at math. No, teacher that has these strong messages, very consistent with a fixed mindset. Right? Mm -hmm. she, she thought I had no talent and there was no effort that could allow me to oh, no. make it. But then I remember I reacted in a way that was I I, I remember thinking I'm gonna show her. 
So I, I had a fixed mindset. For, I don't know why, because that was true for math, but that was not true for arts. Mm -hmm. I, I just believed my, all my friends could draw so well, and I, I never could. So I thought I just lacked the talent, and there was no effort that could put me there. When, this, when I think back, of course, to, to all these experiences, it's like, well, you know, that comes to show like how by chance um, I, I was uh, encouraged in all the right moments and at home as well. Like my parents place all these aspirations and expectations that allow me to thrive in education, mm -hmm. but that's not the case for many others. And, and that was both a source of intellectual curiosity and a drive of trying to make the world better. And, and that's mm -hmm. why now I'm, I'm studying what I'm studying and, and working with the psychologists to learn from them and, and, uh, hopefully I can contribute some things as well from like, bringing in the economics perspective. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. And before I let you go, I feel like I have to ask you about your social entrepreneurship work because that's listed on your website, which is not very common for academics. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what that is all about and how do you work between the two worlds, one entrepreneurship and the other academia? Yeah, so I have an EdTech, an educational technology startup in, based in Brazil. It's called MOVA. I'm one of the partners. MOVA works with higher education uh, institutions, trying to help these universities keep students from dropping out. Uh, part of the story is similar to what I was describing, like social emotional skills that might not be there, but there's a lot more. But in a country like Brazil, uh, it's very challenging uh, to actually change society very fast, in part because not enough people go to university. The OECD average is something like 40% of, mm. of people with a university degree. In Brazil, we're still about half that, like 20, 23%, which is very low. And it's not just low, it's very unequal. Among white students, these rates can be half of what I described. And to try to boost university completion, there's a lot that one has to do is not just a matter of offering university seats. There's been a big increase of private universities. You can debate what the quality is and so on, but that's still the case that in Brazil, if you finish university, you expect your wages to at least double. The earnings premium is very high compared to the US is like a, a different game because there are so few people with university degrees. Mm -hmm. But the problem is People start, and more and more they do start university, there is affirmative action, there is student loans and all these sort of programs. But then 50% of them drop out. Hmm. And they drop out very early in the program. When you try to understand why that happens, uh, what they tell you is not that they... Very few of them say that it's because they cannot pay tuition. Hmm. Very few of them. Most of them actually tell you that they don't think that they belong. They're first gen... They don't feel like universities for them. Everybody always told them that was the case. And now they're just, they feel like the people were right. It's very mm -hmm. frustrating. These universities are not very good at onboarding students and making them feel mm. like they belong. They struggle academically, but also figuring out how to organize internships and their future placements and thinking about their career. It's very different from schools. You know, there's a professor now at BU who has this fantastic book about the hidden curriculum of higher education, which is if you're a first-gen student, you don't even know, like, you can knock on professors' doors and you can, mm. like, you should be thinking about university 
in a very different way than just school. It's not just about passing classes, right? It's mm-hmm. about planning your future career. So there is a big market in the U.S. of products called student success management systems. They're mm-hmm. trying to help these universities better support students in all those dimensions. Smooth these tuition payments in case they, they fall behind, renegotiate or support them financially if they need so, mm-hmm. but also to support them academically if they need tutors, to support them administratively if they need help planning their majors or their internships, and to support them with the social-emotional pillar as well. And so mm-hmm. we're trying to do that in Brazil as well. In Brazil is 10 years behind the U.S. in, in, in what this market looks like, but we're early on in the game uh, and working with some of the biggest uh, university players at the moment uh, and with some early success in preventing students from dropping out. It's a very different uh, life <laughs> than mm-hmm. academic life. Everything has to be fast-paced and uh, committed to short-term results and uh, in the end, evidence generation is slow and uh, you have to do it. It's just like a different a different world. But there's a big team there working on these issues. Nowadays, I, I sit at the board and uh, I'm just thankful that they do this work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. With that, I would like to thank you again for uh, joining on the show today. And I look forward to reading more of your work in the future. Thank you, Angie. My pleasure.